Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Harvest Community Church this morning. The biggest announcement uh, that I have for you is next Sunday, we are gathering together with three different churches in our Hoffman Estates area. And so what we would encourage you next week as you come, if you could please park in the far out parking at the Medcoa lots. If you don't know where the Medcoa lots are, please ask us. Uh, the reason for that is the three different churches, uh, one of them being Willow Creek, uh, we're expecting a good number, a good size of people uh, to come. And uh, the parking here, as you know, is really horrible anyway. So if you add three other churches, it's going to get that much uglier. So my suggestion would be, we'll be running a shuttle back and forth, that if you have kids, drop them off and then head to the out, out lot over there and then we'll shuttle you back for that as well. I'd also encourage you to come as early as possible. I know we say that every Sunday and I know that you guys are making great efforts and strides to be here at 945. But I think it'd be really cool because, you know, you don't want to see uh, the three other churches have all their members up here and then everybody in Harvest is all the way back or up top. So if we kind of intermix and mingle when you come next week and hang out with people that you don't know, don't get upset if somebody's sitting in your normal seat because they probably don't know it's your normal seat. It'll throw you off a little bit, but we would really, really just encourage, we are hosting this in a sense and uh, want to be uh, good hosts for those that are coming. So please uh, park out in the Medcoa lots as well. Uh, Another announcement uh, today, the uh, AFC is having a missions fundraiser. It's a food thing. So they have uh, Bibimbap for $5 and Bingsu for $3 which kind of makes me sad because we have a leaders meeting at 1230 and I got McDonald's, or not McDonald's, um, Dominic's deli sandwiches and uh, I would prefer to stay here and have the bibimbap. But if you just want to give them the offering and take off that, it'd be great for those of you that are leaders and you're having lunch. If you want to have two lunches, feel free to do so. Brian and Sung, so you guys can have two lunches and feel like you're back in Mexico again because you're eating all that stuff. But either way, uh, they wanted to let us know that so that as they get ready to do some mission stuff, that we're also helping them in that as well. All right. Uh, today, uh, we are, in a sense, getting back into First Peter. So if you want to open your Bibles to First Peter. And we haven't been in First Peter since last year which means at least uh, six months, and I'm sure we did a couple Christmas messages, so it's been seven months. And we wanted to do an overview of all the things that we've looked at before we get back into our next sermon series on First Peter. If you're involved in a community group, we will begin the First Peter studies this week. So we are back on schedule for First Peter studies. Uh, if you're not in a community group, I must say as community group pastor, shame on you, uh, but please... There's Wednesday groups and Friday groups that we would love to have you attend as we look at First Peter. So First Peter, if I were to title this, it would be Keeping Our Hope Alive. Keeping Our Hope Alive. Our Living Hope Alive would probably be a better way of saying it. Discouragement, if I can say this, and you probably would agree with me, uh, discouragement is a universal, highly contagious, but curable disease. Uh, Universal, because I would imagine everyone here 
at some points in time in your life, you have been discouraged. You've looked at your circumstances and you have been overwhelmed. You may be questioning and wondering, where is God? Why isn't he moving? Why isn't he speaking? Why isn't he bringing comfort? And you have probably come to a place in following Christ where you said, uh, I'm ready to just throw in the towel. I quit. I give up. That's the end of it. So basically, discouragement is universal because problems are universal. But it's also highly contagious. If you hang around people who are constantly discouraged, if you hang around people who are constantly struggling, and that's what you continually face each and every day, eventually what's going to happen is you will succumb to discouragement as well. Uh, If you hung around somebody who complained about everything, you'll find out that you're ultimately complaining about things. If you hang around grumpy people, you'll find that you will become grumpy. So as you hang around discouraging people, it's very easy yourself to be discouraged because your thought is, how come God isn't moving? How come change isn't happening? You yourself begin to have doubts. But it's curable. It's curable because with a change in perspective or a sense of hope, discouragement can be cured. You can be healed of the discouragement that you have. And as we look at First Peter, I don't know if you remember why Peter is writing, but Peter is basically writing to a large group of Christ followers, and they're in the middle of persecution. Many of them are losing family members, they're losing jobs, they're losing their very lives, and they're probably ready to give up and say, this following Jesus stuff is a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Peter comes along and he wants to encourage them in the midst of these difficult circumstances, and he wants them to see that they can actually have hope. Not just a sense of hope, but a real hope, a living hope, Even though they're going through all of this stuff, there's a reason, there's a plan that is in place. And God wants them to follow him. In a similar manner, I would imagine if we had the time, we had everyone get up, we would share stories of difficulties in our lives. People that we know that are in the hospital, people we know that are struggling with certain issues in their personal lives, all of that to say that in the midst of this discouragement that exists even in our church, people who are struggling, there can be a sense of hope. There's a reason for all this. And so I just want to give you three things today as a reminder or a review of what I think Peter is trying to communicate to these followers of Christ to let them know that their living hope can remain alive. And the first one is this. We should remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation. We should remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation. Let's just read the first three verses. I'm going to skip a little bit of the names. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We need to remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation. What is so great about our salvation? 
I think the greatness of our salvation is if we start with ourselves, we can see what a mess we are internally. Now, even people who have been brought up in the church, if you get to a place where you really look into your heart of hearts and you really see who you are, you know that you're messed up. You know that your longings or your bents or your tendencies are not towards God, but actually towards sin. And I think one of the maybe clearer ways for me, at least, to see this in my own life is to imagine if God said, okay, all rules are off. There are no longer any laws. For just one week, there's going to be no such thing as sin. What would you do? You'll not be held accountable for anything that you do, right or wrong. You're free to do whatever you'd want to do. And when I think of that, it scares me because in my own heart, my thought is, wow, that'd be cool because I could sin like crazy for one week. Just get away with it. It'd be really neat. Only, only you're laughing with me, so I guess we're the only two wretched sinners in the whole place because everyone's wondering, why is he up there then? If we're honest, I think everyone here, if given that opportunity to live in sin for one week, to be free of all consequences of sin, I believe that most, if not all of us, would take that up because there is a longing in our hearts to experience sin, to be free to allow that into our lives and to do whatever it is without consequences. It only reveals the true tendency of our hearts is that we really don't want God. And when I look at myself and I think if that's the kind of person that I am or the type of person that I could be, if allowed to be like that, I'm messed up. And the reason I say that is because when you look and see who God is and all that he has done for us, to think such thoughts are absolutely amazing. And then to think not only are we messed up, but the fact that God would choose us, as it says here in verse 1, that we are God's elect. Or later on that we are, in verse 2, chosen according to his foreknowledge is amazing and helps me to see how great our salvation is. Because we have someone who can see exactly who we are. Know exactly what we would do in given situations, in given certain circumstances, and say, I still choose you. I mean, how many of us realistically would like to choose a friend that we know is going to be disloyal? that we know is going to try to undermine or even ruin or destroy our lives. How many of us would really want to get married knowing that the person we are going to marry is not going to be faithful ever? And that our only hope in marrying this person is that once in a while we might experience some joy, but recognizing that even in the midst of that, that their heart is really not with us, but it's with someone else. And to think that God could look at people who are so messed up and then turn around and say, I choose you to be a part of my family is absolutely amazing. And it's not just a choice, a mental choice that God says, I will choose these people and bring them into my family. But the cost that was expressed slip down later on here in chapter one and look at verse 18. And it says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. In other words, the salvation that we have doesn't come through money. It's not an offering. It's not a bull. It's not a goat. It's not a check. It's not a Benjamin or anything like that. What it really is in verse 19, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
In other words, the ultimate sacrifice. God didn't just say, I see you in your mess. I see how messed up you are. I see your tendencies towards sin. I choose you, and that's the end of it. But he says, the only way that you can really become a part of my family is through the shedding of blood, and not rams or bulls or goats, but the precious blood of my son. An infinite sacrifice for an infinite number of people who have an infinite amount of sin makes me say our salvation is absolutely fantastic. It is the greatest bargain around. Because really, in a sense, as we even saw at our retreat, it is not something you can merit. It is not something you can do or earn. But it is something that you simply believe God has already done. That is absolutely amazing. How many of you would like to retire today? Anybody here? I mean, in a sense, wouldn't you like to say, that's it, man? I'm 43. I don't have... Well, no, you're not all 43. I am, but... 43, and I don't have to work another day in my life because somebody's going to be my sugar daddy kind of thing and they're going to give me a couple billion dollars and I can do with it whatever I want. I would say, I'm there. That's a great bargain, isn't it? In a very similar but so much smaller way, I mean, in a sense, bigger way for God is that he has said, this is it. Here is the bargain. You have nothing to give me. What you deserve is wrath. What you deserve is condemnation. What you deserve is judgment. But I will take it away, not because you can pay for it, because you can't, but because I have already taken care of it. So when Peter says here, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it lets me see, as in a sense of a view so far, is that we need to remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation. It isn't over. These people were discouraged. These people were struggling. But Peter is saying, what you have received in return for these struggles is so much greater than your struggles. Later on in the chapter, he'll say that these struggles are refining your faith. Embrace them. Don't shove them away. Don't be discouraged, but embrace them because of who God is and what he's done. He's not going to let you go. I mean, how cool is the salvation? Verse 4, and into this inheritance, one that can never perish. In other words, it can't be canceled. You know, it's, and I don't want to trivialize our salvation, but it is though God gives you a ticket and he says, you're in. Here's your free pass. Pass, go, collect $200 kind of thing. But here's your ticket. It's not like one day you're going to stand before God and he says, oh, dude, that ticket expired. Sorry. It's canceled. Can't come in. No, Peter says it will never perish. It will not spoil. In other words, it doesn't get rusty. It doesn't get moldy. It's not like picnic food that's been sitting out there for hours, building up salmonella type stuff to make you sick. Your salvation cannot spoil. It cannot fade. It will not disappear. Instead, it is kept in heaven for you. It's put in this vault that not even the jumper can get into. You know what I mean? The movie, The Jumper, for those of you that didn't see the movie, which is kind of a strange movie because it's really supposed to be a superhero, but he's really immoral, but it doesn't make a sense. But anyway, no one can take this from you. Your salvation Second thing, though, that I'm reminded of this, we need to view holiness in terms of relationship. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holiness is in the nature of God. It's, it's who he is. It's not a part of who he is. It's not like he's part love and he's part holy so that like you have an on-off button, like you flip the button and today it's love and then you flip it the other way and today he's holy. It's just a part of who he is. It's his very nature. And so Peter here is telling us that when you realize how great your salvation is, how much God has done for you, how much he has spent in order to bring you into his family, one of the ways in which you respond is with holiness. And when we hear that, we think, okay, holiness. I kind of know what holiness is. There are certain things that I need to do in order to grow in grace and knowledge and holiness. And there are certain things that I need to stop doing so that I can, in a sense, be more holy in my behavior. The unfortunate thing is that many times as Christ followers, we see holiness in terms of action. But I think holiness, although it includes action, is much deeper if we see it in terms of relationship. Because the call that Peter has is to be like him in nature, to be holy like him in nature. Now, let's be honest. How many of us can truly be holy like God in nature? None of us. So if we're going to spend our lives acting like we are holy, we are missing the point, the biblical point, of this call to holiness. Who is holy? God is holy. He is holy in his nature. And so the call is to be in relationship with him. And when we see holiness in terms of relationship, our striving is to be like God, not to necessarily do certain things or avoid certain things. Does that make sense? It's relationship. I am trying to be like you. I am in love with you, and I want to express my love for you. And then in terms, the actions follow. Look at verse 13. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. When he says prepare your minds or gird your mind for action, it's the picture of a Roman soldier. When they would go into battle, what they would do is they, as they had their robes, they would tie them up so that they wouldn't trip over them in the midst of a fight. Which I'm sure you've heard before, like, if you went out into battle with a toga, which I'm not encouraging you to do, of course it really wouldn't do well in modern warfare anyway. But if you went out to battle with a toga, it's not easy to maneuver around, correct? And you may very well, in the midst of trying to slice someone, slip and fall and get sliced yourself. You kind of get the flow of thought here. So you want to gird your loins, prepare for battle, prepare for war, prepare for action, because you want to survive. I mean, I don't know many people that go into war and say, man, I just can't wait to get shot and killed. Right? Even when you watch the movies, the fear is that they might get shot and killed. So the picture here is this Roman soldier girding himself up for battle. So Peter is saying, gird your minds for action. What are those things that excite you in, in more or more personal terms? What are those things that excite you about God? What makes you want to pursue him more? Then gird your loins. Then get yourself ready and chase after that like you would chase after anything that you are passionate about. So the call is be holy, be in relationship, grow to be like him. But while you're seeking to be like him, gird your minds for action. 
passionately pursue things that will stoke the fires in your heart for you to pursue God. In other words, if reading the word of God is what inflames you, and it should, then do that more. And the more you do that, let those flames build. But don't read the word of God because it's an action you are supposed to do, which is duty. But in seeking God, having a desire for God, that duty becomes a part of where you're at. Does that make sense? The passion is relationship. And in that passion for relationship, I will do those things that will stoke the fire. And I will secondly be self-controlled. I will flee from those things that will cause that fire to be put out. Let me put it in terms of a marriage. If I wanted to be happily married, I wouldn't want to buy my wife flowers and say, Hi, Hannah, uh, it's July 6th and I just want to give you flowers. Because I heard a sermon today about giving flowers to my wife, and I figured that's, and I'm the one giving the sermon anyway, but I'm going to give you the flowers because that's what I heard, and that's what good husbands do. Now, I'm, I'm not going to speak for her because she may be touched by the fact that I even thought about getting the flowers, but if she heard the sermon too, and she knew that I was getting the flowers because I'm responding only to the sermon, and if I hadn't heard the sermon, I wouldn't have gotten the flowers, what do you think that gift means? Ladies? Nothing. Why? Because I'm not getting it based out of desire. I may be getting it just because I want to look like a good husband. I may be one of the first husbands to actually get her flowers so that everybody else's wife goes, see how nice he is? He went to Jared kind of thing. You know what I mean? So they're all looking at me and, oh, he's a good husband. He's a great husband. But really, I only did it to be noticed. And she knows that. Then there's something that's missing. But if I get her flowers because you know what? It is Sunday and you just deserve it because you're the most beautiful woman I know. And I am glad to be married to you. There's a world of difference. Does that make sense? And, and when, I, when I have the opportunity to play softball, like uh, uh, practicing yesterday, to say, you know what, I could play softball, which I love to do, but I know that's going to create difficulties, and I don't want to do it because I want to be here with you. It's a world of difference if we can treat our relationship with God very similar. Why? Because holiness is relationship. It's not activity. Activity is a part of that relationship, but if you are focusing on the activities for the rest of your life, you are trying to fulfill the law, a law which you cannot fulfill, forgetting that the gospel has already fulfilled all of that, and you struggle and you strive, and at the end of the day, you see that all of your effort has been in vain. What a waste. So Peter says, listen, how great is our salvation? You people are messed up. But look at God, who has chosen us, who has spared nothing in order to bring you into his family, now invites you to be a part of his family, and then says, don't get wrapped up in activities, but get wrapped up in me. Desire me. Seek to be like me, and these things will fall into place. Which leads me to the third thing. Not only should we remind ourselves of the greatness of our salvation, Not only should we view holiness in terms of relationship, but we should be active in kingdom ministry. Chapter 2, verse 9. Flip over there. It reads, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful night. Oh, sorry, into his wonderful light. That makes a world of difference. We should be active in kingdom ministry. The verses here, and even Pastor Matt talked about it. We are a royal priesthood. We are the go-betweens. We are the intermediaries. So not only has this great salvation been extended us to enjoy and join God's family, but in turn, as we seek him, God wants us to be active in the world in which we live in. The problem, I think, in some ways with American Christianity is we are so individualized. We've gotten to a place where we believe it is about me and my personal relationship with Christ. I have Jesus as my personal Savior that we look at everything from personal perspective rather than a corporate perspective, understanding that when you join God's family, you join a family that has a business or a kingdom business that we're supposed to be about. So following Jesus isn't like I'm going to get my love that I didn't get from my parents or from whoever. I'm going to get my blessings because life is difficult. I'm going to get this for me. Yeah, those may very well be a part of following Jesus, but those blessings that we have been given are then to be extended to the people who are around us or the people who could possibly be around us as we go to Tuba City or we go to Mexico or wherever we would go. Because we are a royal priesthood. God has brought us into his kingdom family to be about his kingdom business. Because business, the kingdom business, matters to God. And his call is for us to stand in between people and act as a priesthood. You can't intercede for yourself, so I will stand in between and I will intercede for you. You want to know about the greatness of salvation? Well, it's not just going to always happen through dreams and visions as it sometimes happens in the Muslim world, but it's going to happen because the royal priesthood that we are are going to get out there and we're going to share the greatness of our salvation as priests and let people know how great this is. This salvation that we have is awesome. It is fantastic. In fact, Peter says, listen, you're a royal priesthood, but we are the people belonging to God that we might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, you are walking billboards of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, when you go down 294 or wherever you go and you see billboards, what do you do? You look at them because they're interesting. Some of them are, and I guess and some of them aren't. And then they have the new ones that are really cool because they're electronic, because you have the one that's up there, and then they get another one, which is a real cool marketing ploy because you probably get several companies for that one space, and you make more money, right? Great ploy. But that's who you are. So when you leave here, not only do you enter the mission field, but you enter the mission field as a billboard. You are saying salvation is a great thing. I would prefer to walk in lightness, light rather than darkness. And I want you to see that because it's so much better. I mean, people are living in homes and they may think that they're clean homes, but if they were to put on their goggles, they would see all the little bugs and insects that are in their home and they would go, ooh, this is gross. Because in a sense, when we are walking among people as a royal priesthood, we're advertising and saying, you may not see what a mess you are. But I have seen because God has shown that. And I want you to see that there's so much more to life in Christ than there is outside of Christ. And where you may think that you're okay, you are walking in darkness. But here is something that is so rich 
and so precious and so valuable that I treasure it and I will hold on to it. And I want you to have some of it too. It's kind of like Jared, right? He says, you know, this is what I was, but this is what I am now, and this is great, and I ain't going back. And I know some of you are cynics are saying, because of a lot of money, which I'm sure plays a part in it, but I would imagine even without that money, he would say, this lifestyle is so much better. We are advertisements. You know, as Christians, when we walk around and we're all depressed and sad and grumpy, what are we advertising? Jesus saves you from your sin so that you may be miserable. Follow him, right? Who's going to follow that? Hey, I've got a diet plan for you. It really works. You'll gain 15 pounds. No one wants that. Hey, you want to get in shape? Sit around on the couch. Now we may want to sit around the couch, but that's not going to get us in shape. The advertisement that we are basically says, this God who holds the universe in the palm of his hands has looked upon my situation has looked upon me and has seen in the mess of who I am that there's something valuable, something worth treasuring. And he gave everything that he possibly could in order to bring me out of this darkness, to bring me into relationship with him, to allow me to see that a life of holiness gives so much more than a life of darkness that it really is worth it. And that's really what Peter is saying to a discouraged group of people who are probably on the verge of saying, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore because it's just too hard. He's not saying it's going to get easier. As you go through First Peter, he's not saying, dudes, you will suffer for 10 more weeks and then your life will be bliss. It'll all be wonderful from here on in. He's going to get into a whole bunch of areas of submission and, and he's going to be even talking about in the following weeks, submission to government leaders who may very well be evil. That's not easy. So Peter is not promising the ease of life. What he is promising is that you have a living hope. A living hope. Not because of something you've done, but because God has done it all. He has initiated and he will sustain. He will bring to completion the work that he's already started in your life. You just walk with him. You just follow after him. You just get to know him. And as the more you get to see who he is, and the greater the depth of that salvation that God has given to you sinks into your heart, the only thing that you can do is overflow. And be that advertisement that he has called us to be in a world that is looking for hope. In some ways, isn't that what the election is about coming in November? Change, hope. People are looking for it. They're crying out for it. They're not going to find it in government, but they can find it in God. And they're not going to find it if we don't advertise the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of having a relationship and following after God. Because we are chosen family, chosen people, and a royal priesthood. And we have something that we can give to people that will change their lives in ways that will be exciting.
It, it reminds me of Tuba City as we go down there. Every year I always think if only there was a group of people who would just stay down here and could one day see what could happen with these kids. I mean, it's amazing. These little kids, they come first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. They're happy. They're moving around. Fifth grade, you start to get the ones who are quiet. Sixth grade, they're really quiet. And then teens are almost like mute. Something has happened in that time period where they have been unable to see light. And now they're just going to head down the path of darkness because that's the way. God calls us, it's his chosen priesthood, to go and to break those cycles, whether it's in the inner city or in Tuba City or Mexico, and give people a living hope. Not to sit there and lay down on their backs and allow them to roll over and die, but a living hope that causes them to act, to make the world a better place in Christ for everyone to live. Let's pray. Father, we are, or at least should be, absolutely awestruck, astounded by the greatness of our salvation. To really think quite clearly as to who we are and what our heart motives are like. And then to think that in all of that, you still choose us. Foolishness is what it really is. But your foolishness is great wisdom because it brings great life. So, Father, we thank you for this living hope that you have given us. And may our response not be just activities and do's and don'ts, but really relationship to pursue you passionately to cast off those things that will cool our love and affection for you. So that as we go out into the mission field where you have placed us, whether it's in downtown Chicago or in some suburban neighborhood or somewhere in the States or overseas, that we might advertise the greatness of this salvation that you have initiated, that you sustain and complete. And may that so grab our hearts that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, that we might embrace these difficulties and see that they are precious moments that refine our faith and get us to a place where we see that you are faithful, not to us, but to your promises. That everything that you have said will be found to be true, and that this salvation will never perish, spoil, or fade, but it is kept in heaven, where no one can take it away. No one can touch it. It is there. It is eternal. And it is your gift to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.